Well, you may be seated. We're going to jump into some things tonight. Uh, I'll warn you that this will be part one of what we're looking at for the third verses tonight. There is so much to begin to go for us to get through the seven trumpets and the scroll and the witnesses and so forth that are in here. And I could take an hour and a half and teach this tonight, but I would lose you probably within 30 minutes. So <laughs> I'd rather just go ahead and, and stir it up a little bit and uh, just make the journey that much more understandable. So we're dealing with the seven trumpets tonight. We're coming to that further study in the book of Revelation. So we'll begin with chapter 8 is where we're going to get into the prior tonight. And uh, chapter 8. What we'll be dealing with is the third vision of the book of Revelation. And what I hope you've understood as we share on these visions is that these visions run parallel to each other. In other words, you don't have one that comes up here, stops, and the next one takes over. They're all running in the same, in other words, there's a parallel to each other with that. They're, they're, what I'm, what I'm saying is that you don't begin at the beginning of Revelation and then move on chronologically. It's not chronological. There is no chronological. That's just whatever you say. These big words get me all the time. I need my Taco Bell. That's what I need. Anyway, but there is no chronology to the book or in the book of Revelation, because what you have is principle. That's what this whole book is about. Principle. You, you can't say this happened at such and such a time, or that this will happen at such and such a time. The only specific time is that each vision moves to the grand finale, the judgment of God and the coming of Christ. Each one of these. The rest of the visions are principles. They are principles that occur during the period of time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. In that period, in between, these principles work. So, if you want to take a look at, at that age, that period of time, says vision number one, to, to look at it one way, it, it is Christ. One of the parallels is Christ walking in the midst of the church. And that whole period of time, right up until today and tomorrow and endless tomorrow, until the end shall come, you will always find Christ walking in the midst of His church. And you will always find churches that fit the description of the seventh church. But then says the second church, that if you want to look at it a different way, a different parallel, you go back and say this all began when the exalted Lamb of God sitting upon the throne and unfolding the purposes then for of God for mankind. And if you look at it like that, then you see a white horse of the preaching of the gospel, followed by the persecution, horse, the economic persecution, and all that follows because of that, because of the preaching of the gospel. In fact, as that vision rushes to an end, if you remember, 
it says the world of men has got to face up to the wrath of the Lamb. Everything is shaking and collapsing, and the world is falling in on itself, and then, boom, it's in there. Well, it, it says in that last part of the vision, that's the end, but we don't get there yet. It says, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. Want to look at it a different way? Well, now we have vision three. Vision three, that, that's where we are tonight. And in a sense, it begins with the first covenant of Christ, only on this occasion, it really doesn't bother with that too much. It, it was there by, the, by implication, but the third vision is really seeking to tell us. We have seen as visions unfold that the world has rejected the Lamb of God. Right? God has enthroned His Lamb on the throne, and the world has pretty much thumbed their nose up. You remember that one of the most important prophetic pieces of the Old Testament is Psalm 2. In fact, I would encourage you to really study that psalm. You, you realize they're psalms and they're not chapters, they're psalms. So, if you were to study it, because in my book, it's one of those keys. And it is a focus point of prophecy in the Old Testament. And it says that, it says there that even though the nations are raging against God, God has said what? I will place my son upon his throne. And at the end of the psalm, the, 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 the psalmist turns to all those raging nations and says, Be warned, you kings of the earth, kiss the son, lest he be angry. That is, come and worship before the Lord's anointed. God has set his king in the heavens, and you will be well advised to kiss the son to worship him, to acknowledge and to agree with God. Now, that is, that really is what we are looking at here. The Son has been exalted. The preaching of the gospel has gone forth. And what has followed, as we talked about, is anger. Man rising against the Lamb on the throne. And they have persecuted the church. You remember the cry of the martyrs under the altar? Remember that? How long, O Lord? How long? Justice must be done. We can never say salvation has finally been manifested until justice has been done. So, says our vision, do you, do you want to have a look at that kind of thing? You, you want to then come back and, and, and look at it. So even as men have rebelled against God's Son, they have rejected the Lamb on the throne, they have persecuted the church. And guess what? Men don't get away with that. This, this world, men will. So the trumpets blow. Men don't get away with the result of that. Trumpets blow. What that means is men hate God. Men hate God. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you believe. I don't care if you're Ronald Reagan's son. As an atheist, he says, I don't believe in God, and he wants to make sure. I mean, I'll never forget. Uh, I don't I'm going to squirrel on this. Make it that much longer. But there was a year when we were looking at setting up a nice 
nativity scene on the yard there in, in front of the courthouse at Christmas. And he wrote a letter to the mayor threatening the lawsuits and everything else until he had the back end to that. Yeah, there's been some changes from that time. But, I mean, that's just, I don't care who you are. You're going to face God. I don't care what you believe. You're going to face God. And, and, and honestly, seek your presence. So, let's back to what we said. What do we mean by these signs? Because we find, we find them there in the eighth chapter. So, we won't take time to, to read them, get all of that reading in, because but we'll refer to them as we go along here. But again, we're after the picture here. What is behind the picture? What is the sense? So what do these trumpets mean? Well, I mean, we are looking for, of course, the symbols. Understanding that this is a coded message. We have said that wherever we find the code, we find that it is broken for us by a reference to the Old Testament. And, and that Old Testament, the Old Testament is full of it. I started playing the trumpet, right? Especially in the early part of the Old Testament. You have all the keys that you need to unlock the trumpet. You may remember in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 16. Now, some of these I'm just going to give you, I'm not going to read you, but refer to them. That at the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, there was the trumpet of God that sounded. You all remember that? We've already come up against that in this book. And, and, and I'm saying that the trumpet of God that sounded at Mount Sinai called all men to hear what God was saying. And what was God saying in Mount Sinai? It was the giving of His law. That is, it was a manifestation of His holiness. So hold that in your mind. So let's go over these bullet points, shall we? When a trumpet sounded, Men were called to hear a manifestation of God's holiness. They were to bring their lives up to the awesome Ten Commandments and to realize that hey, this is absolute, and all must, all men must be judged by that. So the trumpet called them to view the law. Okay, that's the first one. You'll remember in Joshua chapter six, in verse five, the trumpet blew when the children of Israel went into the land of Jericho, into Canaan, and they confronted the city of Jericho. Jericho had heard the word of the Lord and had been confronted by the Lord for a lot of years, but had consistently, consistently rejected it. So when the trumpet blew, it was a warning to all those inside Jericho that judgment was about to fall upon them. Again, the trumpets were associated with the holiness of God, calling men in the light of that to repent and understand that God will not hold back His judgment forever. That's probably a very key one for me personally. I mean, I'm not asking you to, but for me personally, this is very key in understanding this. Because what reality came to me, I mean, that was going to come up very you, you can do the moves, have all the right knowledge, all this other stuff. It becomes a question of another way of saying it. It's there. 
And that cloak means that guess what? Judgment delayed is near at hand. In, so I'll just wrap up here, but in First Kings in chapter 1, when you come to verse 34, the trumpet sounded when the king was crowned. The sound of the trumpet announced to all who heard it, the king has been crowned. Now, only a few people would hear it, the king, that the king had been crowned. Uh, but that trumpet signified that the crown was actually placed upon the head of the king. And so that was because only a few people witnessed the act of coronation. The others heard it. But so that everyone should know when that moment had happened, that he's been crowned, the trumpets blew. So that all could understand what they could not see. All could understand what they could not see. They understood that the king had been crowned. When you get to Numbers in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, there was a call to worship. When the trumpets sounded, all were called to worship God. Similarly there, if you go to chapter, in Numbers chapter 29 and verse 1, every new year at the feast of the new year, they were called at that time to repent. And they were called to repent by the sound of the trumpet. All those elements are in the trumpet. If we are to put in the key and then turn it, if you will, and have these chapters unfold to us, we need to understand these keys. So, what are trumpets? What is the principle? He is telling me that throughout all time, God blows trumpets. That is, God announces to mankind the king has been crowned. You did not see it. It happened in the invisible, but the king has been crowned. But of that, God calls all men to repent. God calls all men to face up to their sin in the light of the holy law of God and warns men that judgment inevitably must come unless they repent. But the king has been crowned, so we come to worship him. I hope you're getting a little picture there what I'm trying to paint. But do you understand what we're doing here? I mean, that is what is in the Old Testament as far as telling us what trumpets are for. John uses that as a code symbol as he shares this, this vision. He is saying that all through time, God is blowing his trumpet. Men, as a result, who have rejected God have got to face up to God, coming among them, arresting them, blowing a trumpet in their ear and saying, Stop. Stop in your tracks. A king has been crowned. Repent. Worship. Now, they are not exactly mm, trumpets of nice sound. Grandson Noah did not want him to play the trumpet. He didn't think like playing the trumpet was. But when men have heard the preaching of the gospel and they rebel against that preaching, then all that is left 
is a trumpet with a very harsh sound. The mercy of God comes with a certain kind of harshness, does it not? And if you read through all these events that the trumpet brings and that it ushers in, if, if you listen, you'll hear echoes from the Old Testament. And I think you will immediately recognize you have read all of that somewhere before. Well, you read it when you are, were in Exodus and the plagues fell on Egypt. You'll find every one of those plagues is parallel. The intensity is different, but the idea is still here. Egypt is a perfect example of what we're talking about. Egypt was, of course, locked into its idolatry. Egypt defiled and mocked God. And in so doing, turned upon Israel, the Lord's people, and they persecuted them. Let's be careful. God has set His Israel among them. God has announced that He is God, and Egypt defiled that, mocked it, and moved in and persecuted the Lord's people. Why didn't why, why didn't God move in into immediate judgment? I mean, we're talking four years, four hundred years ago. But he, he, if you know, He did right. The immediate judgment when Moses comes on the scene was the death of the firstborn. God said, Israel is my first son. If you don't relinquish my firstborn, you will have to relinquish your firstborn. That was the judgment. God did not do that immediately. In fact, month after month after month went by before he did do that. He continually blew a trumpet in their ears. He called them the nine plagues. The tenth plague was, in actual fact, the judgment. But nine trumpets sounded in their ears. Nine times over, God said, Won't you stop in your tracks and listen to me? Won't you repent? Won't you worship? God is God. Nine times over, they hardened their hearts and refused, and then came the judgment. You may remember in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 5 that God called those plagues, the beginning of them anyway, signs. They point something. It is if God slaps them on the face and says, Look, be arrested by what I am doing so that you may repent. And if you were in Egypt during the time of those plagues and you saw everything you held on to that was called great was collapsing all around you. You were losing. In fact, you were losing all your gods. You were losing all your sustenance as far as life is concerned. Everything was leaving you. You would say, God, doing this? That was the goodness of God leading you to repentance. You know, we can look to it as bad things, horrible things, but Trust me when I tell you, it's the goodness of God leading us to repentance. I hope you follow what I'm saying. They, they were trumpets of mercy. And we'll get to the trumpets of judgment later. But these were trumpets of mercy. God was calling the people to repent. 
it was only in the very end. So, I mean, I mean, when Pharaoh and the people who were behind Pharaoh so hardened their hearts that God said, well, you may have what you desire. But even then, it was still the trumpet of mercy. But it was the demons that drove Pharaoh from, the point, from that point to have the desire of his heart and to finally lose all of Egypt and defeat. It was the trumpet of judgment before that. And so, all through history, God comes to a people who have rebelled against him, and before final judgment, there come the trumpets of God's mercy, calling them to repentance. I hope what you're doing is getting the background picture of what we're supposed to be moving into, especially if you've been doing your homework, if you've been reading those chapters. So, some of the details we will come back to as we get further in the book when we relate it all together. I want you to understand that as soon as we get into some of this, because we're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to take a look at a number of things. But just what we're after tonight is to get the general picture in that first trumpet that sounds in chapter 8. Tells me in verse 7, the first sounded. You got hail and fire mixed with blood that's thrown to the earth. Let's read that. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. You know, I used to read through this years and years ago and think, okay, the third, you know, got all burned up, and everything else got destroyed here. Then a little bit later, another third all got burned up. By the time I got done, I'm thinking, man, there's no earth left. It speaks of the earth, but it doesn't say not all the earth. Notice it's a third. The point is there, it's about not all the earth. God is not coming in some big sweeping judgment, not at all. Not all. But there is a part of the earth that is burned up. The grass was burned up. You are persecuted. I'm sorry, not persecuted. You are presented. It's a different word. You are presented with a picture here. Remember, we're getting the whole punch of that picture as we look at it. That's the key here. You are seen there, sinner man, who is meeting with God upon the land that supports his life. And he is discovering all around him that his very support of life is being taken away. He is meeting with God right there on his own earth. That, that's the parallel to Egypt. You might remember that in Egypt, the whole support of Egypt was what? The Nile River. That was the first plague that God set upon them. He took their source of life and he turned it into death. That is, shed blood. Death ran blind by them. Their, their very source of life had been smitten with God's presence. You remember also that God smote the dust of the earth. The very earth on which they walked, they realized, was under the control of God. 
That's the whole point. Or, or again, he called to the locusts that ate up everything that was green, and they were left destitute. It was God meeting them just exactly where they had their sustenance of life. Right there. First Chronicles, second Chronicles. And it said that something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. That great mountain that burned with fire, uh, I won't say that everybody knows what that is, but that is a quotation that's taken from the book of Jeremiah, which immediately tells me what that great mountain is. In, in the book of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 51 and verse 25, it says, Behold, I am against O destroying mountain, who destroys the whole earth, declares the Lord, and I will stretch forth my hand against you and roll you down from the crags, and I will make you a burnt-out mountain. That mountain in Jeremiah chapter 51 is the city or the people of Babylon. So when I come to the second trumpet, God is going to Babylon and saying that He is going that 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 is going to be cast down into the sea, dispersed, smashed, gone, just as Jeremiah said it would. We shall be dealing for a whole hour in a few weeks' time with Babylon and what it means in the Book of Revelation. So, like I said, write your little questions down, and we'll. I mean, so just shove that in a pile right now at this time. We're going to get to that. But just for the present, Babylon is the world system of the Bible. All that is behind the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and the people lorded over by Satan, that is Babylon. And God said that it is going to come like a burning mountain into the sea, finished, gone. We shall see how that looks and really take place, and we shall come to that later. Trust me. To do it now would take us out of the flow of what we're doing now, and it's very clear we need to deal with it later. So, getting into the third trumpet is spoken of in verse 10. The angel sounded, a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers. And notice again, not all the rivers, and on the springs of the waters, and the name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many died from the waters because they were made bitter. A star that falls from heaven. Hmm. Remember in the first in the first chapter of Revelation here, Jesus gave us the key to what a star meant. Remember that? So that's going to carry on all the way through. He said the stars are the messengers, the angels that he held in his hand. So, one that claims falling down from heaven. Here is a fallen messenger, one that fell from heaven, the spirit messenger that fell from heaven and fell specifically to the waters. Hmm. Okay, what do the waters mean in Babylon? 
that is probably, in my book, one of the simplest of all because it is in the New Testament. You remember Jesus said to the woman in John chapter 4, Whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give will never thirst again. I mean, obviously, he wasn't standing there with a big bottle of water, was he? Obviously, he was speaking of that that both he and us can understand. And that is this. Where I drink is where my spirit is fed. Oh, please hear me. Where I drink is where my spirit is fed. That, that's why I... Am I allowed to get in trouble at a certain point here? That's why, you know, first of all, I don't have a problem with, like, with, I'll, I'll just single out one name. Um, Judy Evans or Judy Christy, Judy. I have a problem with that. Don't, don't misread or mishear what I'm saying. But when people obsess with Christian TV, and that's where they get their feeding, only where they get their air. Not, not from their time with God or from His Word or from His presence or any place like that. The reality is they're going to get fed by a lot of stuff that's going to come out better. So I'll say this again. Where I drink is where my spirit is fed. If, 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 you're being, if, you're, if your spirit's being fed by Fox News, CNN, I'm just being real with you, friends. This is talking to the church. And this is where we get into wormwood. I mean, remember, he spoke similarly, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And out of him shall flow rivers of living water. Hello, somebody. Water, a, trans, a transition, is, is really easily made from water to that which comes into my spirit, that which I drink from. Now, here are the waters that feed men. And that is, here are the philosophies, the teachings that feed men. It says, a demonic angel, a fallen spirit, comes into all the philosophies that feed men, and his name is Wormwood. Wormwood is bitter. In fact, in Deuteronomy 29, it is called something poisonous, deadly poisonous. So, into the philosophies, the, the way men think, into all the teachings that guide the minds of men, there comes ideas and stuff. I think if you look over the last few years, probably, you know more about Wormwood water than at any other time in history, in my book. It's always been there. But today, if you only step back, all the waters that are feeding mankind today are bitter. They're deadly poisonous. And you only you only have to go to, to, to a bookstore. Every one of those novels and, and, and magazines on the shelves are waters that feed the souls of men. I, I, I mean, any television any newscasts, any movies are, are waters that feed the souls of men, and they are wormwood. They are bitter. They're deadly poison. And, and I'll say this, be careful. The church can be in this. The church can be in just as much bondage 
not led by the Spirit, but led by His rules, led by its traditions, led by its ideas, led by its old not fall and collapse by accident. Ready? Man's very world on which he stands, it just doesn't suddenly, man can break into pieces by accident. We don't get there overnight. And all the filthy, the, the putrid streams that flow into the mind of men do not come by accident. Hello? Men have rejected God. And so, as, as Romans 1 puts it, do you remember that? It says, God gave them up. It does not mean to say that he wiped his hands with them and said, you're done. No. I mean, if you want, if you, what he's saying is, if you want it, then you can have it. That, trust me, that's where your notes are at. That is the worst judgment anyone could ever know. And God allows a man to have that which he craves. I've said it before. The worst thing God could ever do to you is to give you exactly what you want. So the waters are made putrid. They're made poisonous. It says in the fourth trumpet that a third of the lights in heaven stop shining. Take a look at it in verse 12. It says the fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in the mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, 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 to those who dwell on the earth, because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Darkness or at least a kind of darkness. It's not total darkness. And here, what you have in that darkness is confusion. Everybody say that word with me. Confusion. Men can no longer see. <laughs> we talked about, why is this happening? Why is that happening? Why are people acting this way? Why is there so much of this bad and evil and all these things? Because men are confused. They can't any longer see. I don't know if that was good English or spoke correctly, but they can't. Remember that ninth plague of Egypt when the intense darkness came upon Egypt? Remember that? And what was going on in Goshen where the Israelites were? There was light. So you have a reminder here that the confusion, a total confusion, in the of, of the minds of men is taking place, and they're wandering. They bump into each other. They don't know where they're going. It comes from God, and, and again, He allows it in order that men may suddenly realize the situation that they're in. 
from our perspective, when you look upon a world covered with confusion, when you see the putrid rivers and you wonder, why don't people stop and realize what fools they are? One of the plainest verses in Scripture, Paul wrote in Romans 1 again, where it says that professing themselves to be wise, (laughs) they become fools. When I listen to the philosophers, that's what I call them on the radio, I, I, I listen to them and, 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 and I, I shake my head. And I ask myself how 1% of a brain could ever accept 1% of the nonsense that is pouring out of the mouth of so-called... When I listen to what our children are taught in school in the name of the Lord, I see darkness and confusion. Well, why doesn't someone out there realize that this is what man has gotten himself into. I will turn to God. It is a trumpet blowing in his ear if only he could hear it. Now, the fifth, fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets are called woes. That's bad enough. God says, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth at the end of each trumpet. So, the fifth trumpet, which is the first woe, describes a horde of creatures being loosed from the pit. Now, there's a lot of verses there that we could be going over, but I just want to cover a few of them. I mean, there's a lot of them. We'll come back to those parts of it later as we walk through this. Right now, we're after the picture that we're looking at. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. Jesus, we're making reference back to something. And the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace from the sun, and the air was darkened by the smoke of the pit. I hope by now you're getting imagined, you're getting symbols, you're seeing pictures in your head. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told, that's key, they were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Keep talking. Notice it says they were like locusts. And again, that takes us back where? To the plagues of Egypt. Where they were like locusts. Okay, there was a plague of locusts, if you remember. Incidentally, that particular plague of Egypt is one of the most momentous of all the plagues because it says, if you'll remember, that the locusts came from afar. They were blown by the wind, which was telling Egypt God is not only the God in control of Egypt, He's also God. And he brings locusts from way over there, and they come like a great smoke horde over the land of Egypt. God brought them from afar. Again, it was a momentous plague. In this one, John sees a great smoke coming out of the bottomless pit. Out of it come these creatures that look like locusts. But, but, oh, who are these creatures? 
Jesus wanted the two of Hebrews to be called holy. Because to them it was commanded, do not eat any green thing. You don't touch the grass. But what do they do then? As you look at it, they torment men. Here you have a picture of hordes of demons pouring out of the pit. And like locusts cover the land of green, so these demonic locusts, if you will, they cover the land of men. Whoa. Indeed, yes. To the inhabitants of the earth. They are led by one who is called Apollyon. That means destroyer. It is a horrible, terrible picture as they torment men and then scream, but they still do not repent. They're looking for meaning and ways and understanding of life and looking for fulfillment and value, and they get into everything that men can conjure up in their mind, which is only evil to begin with. Now notice, very, 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 very clearly, in these four verses of chapter 9, when it is speaking of the locust demon that comes to torment men, that it says they are not to hurt the grass of the earth or any green thing, that tells them that they are not real locusts, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Hello? Not every man can be touched either. Many people today would disagree with us, or some would disagree with me on that, and argue with chapter 9 and verse 4. This, this is that these hordes of demons that overshadow the world they cannot touch those who have the seal of God in their forehead or on their forehead. We've already we've already gone over this. We have seen that that is the hundred and forty-four thousand, which is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, although we are in the midst of a demonic invasion, and although hordes of demonic locusts cover the earth, walk straight and walk tall, child of God, you have the seal of God in your forehead, on your forehead. You cannot be touched. Now, you can be touched. You're in the world, but you can't be touched. So the vision, this vision, this, this, what this vision is saying, everybody around you, things that are happening, I'm just sorry. I'm sorry. But, but why am I going through so much pain? Why am I going through so much tragedy? Why am I losing so much? Why is things? Because you're in the world. And it's going to affect you. But the real you can't be touched. I know that I know that I know. I know what's going on around me. But let me tell you something. My eyes are fixed on the Lamb on the throne. And then I give me the things that He is ever making intercession. Does that mean that everything is going to be good for me and I'll have comfort and peace? 
no more problems, wrong religion. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean everything works out, does it? The rain falls on the just and the... You get what I'm saying? Okay, let's go on to the trumpet because it's too late. Which is the second woe. Verse 13, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which was before God. That's the picture of a tabernacle. Understand what we're looking at right here. The voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to, uh, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. It says that the river Euphrates, okay, there was given permission for hordes to come across the river Euphrates. What does the river Euphrates stand for? In the Old Testament, the river Euphrates was the last barrier. The other side of the river Euphrates was Babylon and Assyria. So whenever they came to invade Israel, they always had to cross the river Euphrates first. So the river Euphrates became, in the minds of the people, the barrier between them and those persons who would destroy them. So here comes a great force across the Euphrates. Destruction is on its way. That is what it is saying. But also, those persons beyond the Euphrates were not just persons. They were, as we shall see, Babylon. Now, we're back to Babylon again. And what was Babylon in essence? It was all the anti-Christian forces. Antichrist, friend, is not a New Testament concept. I know what all the teaching says, but understand, it's only developed in the New Testament. Antichrist goes right back to the book of Genesis in chapter 10. Antichrist is, the, is as old as the Bible. For as soon as God declared his Christ, Satan declared his Antichrist. Now understand, you're going to find that's not a person. Antichrist doesn't mean a person. Well, we'll get into that later. I'm sorry. You start to get back to the sections that we're getting into now, and I just want to go in every direction because there's so much here. But I'll say it again. You know, no, I won't say it again. I'll come to it later. But the bottom line is, Satan has declared his Antichrist, by the way, this is a veiled statement, over and against him. Over, not just against him, but over and against him. So you have that from the very beginning of the Bible. Antichrist was always the other side of the Euphrates. And whenever that was dried up or, or it came across, then all the powers that hated God were released. Again, we're going to return to that woe later on in this book. We've got a lot of territory to cover. So we're getting the foundations, the basis, the general picture here. But now, all these things, they, I'll say it again. Please hear me. They do not happen chronologically. Understand? Thank you, Lord. Lord, help me. 
Because when I look across the world and I say, I look at it over here and I say, that's, that's this country. Well, over here, I can see he is blowing this trumpet. These things do not happen one after the other. But they are happening all around us. I think it's very easy to take a look at this world today and see that based on what we just talked about. I, I, I mean, it, it is for us, and this is key, to interpret what we see and what we hear in the light of what God says. It is a trumpet. Will men not hear? When men see the power of Satan and the world, will they not hear? God has allowed men to have what he wants. Worst thing we could ever get. The devils cannot do what they want. They can only go so far and no further. Remember that. God is blowing a trumpet and saying, here is what you want. Really? Here? It, you know, it's like, oh, that's what you want? Repent. The king has been trumpeted. Let's not worship there in chapter 9, the very last verse, it says, and they did not repent of the murderers, of, of their murders, nor did they, of their, nor did their sorcerers, nor did their immorality, nor of their sexual immorality. They did not I'll go a little further. You don't have notes for it. What's going to happen is we will have moved right through the vision, and then God says, hold everything. So we're going to have a, a question. What was the hold everything? The hold everything was, what happened to the church? What, what You got all this going on. What happened to the church? It's going to be very important to understand this. Take a look at this. So we'll come into chapter 7. We'll go on to that little scroll book and we'll talk about some things with the two witnesses. You will know who the two witnesses are after you see this. There, there's a there's a very valid case of it. You did, didn't know that, did you? Because it was in the book of Revelation. 
know, this is what I Would you stand with me? Continue on with looking at chapter 10 and chapter 11. We want to finish up the seventh trumpet. We want to get into the, the, the twelfth thing there. We want to talk about the two witnesses. That's going to take us to chapter 11. Keep reading it. Reread. I would say reread, too, from chapter 1 all the way up to where we're at because the refreshing of the Scripture's understanding. Take your notes. We've spent a lot of hours here talking about this. You can't just take one thing out of this. You have to lay it down together. This, again, I want to remind you, these are not things that are chronological. And I'm going to keep telling you that because I want to get the word down. <laughs> but it's parallel. It's just like these pews are running parallel with each other. Even though it has people, different people in different ones, they're all running parallel. So these things are happening all at the same time. They're chronological. They're principles. They're not something that happens one right after another, right after another, right after another. That's one of the very keys of understanding what we're talking about when we talk about historical understanding of the book of Revelations and what John is showing through the coded symbols as he's writing this stuff down. Oh, we've got some stuff to look at. And I'm having fun. I hope you are. Because there's so much more here. This is exciting. We're going to be talking about the grand finale, the second coming of Christ, all that stuff together. But we've got to get there, okay? And that doesn't really happen. You don't see this. And again, it's parallel, parallel, parallel. It's not, okay, we go through this phase and that ends, and now we'll start this phase and that ends, then we'll start this phase and that ends, and finally we'll get to this last vision, and the Lord will finally come back. That's not how it works. All these visions are parallel. And what we see is the grand finale as we finish out that final vision that's running parallel with all the others. They're all happening at the same time. There's a day coming. This is every Christ to life and that when we who are alive and remain shall be what? To be with Him how long? About a thousand years? Okay, just throwing that out there for right now. We'll come back to that later. Lord, thank You again for tonight in Your Word. Thank You for leading us and guiding and directing us. Thank You for bringing not only an encouragement but an excitement you're able. You are in control. We might not see it. We might not understand what's going on around us. But Lord, there's a place for my spirit that is ready. And may I bear witness with this I can look on this world and look at these concepts and philosophies and ideas that man thinks is the right way of how we ought to be doing this over there and taking care of that and, and, and just the demonic aspect of trying to control the world and war and stuff that's Lord, you're still in control. Things are not what they seem to be. There are trumpets that are blown. Hallelujah. May our 
them as they come in and go out. Continue to strengthen them and bring them wisdom. Continue to favor them and guide them. Protect them. Impart your health to them. Bless them as they are dressed and are coming in and are going out in all that they have by you. Amen. Can we give him praise one more time? He's worthy.